Tis the season for runners with the holidays right around the corner. Whether you're shopping for your favorite runner in your life or want to treat yourself, Running Warehouse has got you covered with their official 2023 holiday gift guide. Of course, we've got opinions too. Gooder sunglasses are always a go-to for us. They come in endless design options and are something that runners will never argue about having multiple pairs of. The Naked Band isn't just a gift, it's a life changer for the way it lets runners take all things on the run while making it compact and completely unobtrusive. Finally, you've got to go search for the CLA Holiday Cap and Iconic Athletics Folia Color. It's amazing and we love that it exists. New from our favorite headgear company, this hat is both perfect for dead of winter runs and your next Christmas story party all at once. Head over to Running Warehouse's Holiday Gift Guide to check out all this stuff and more. Visit the link in our description or run straight to runningwarehouse.com today. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Doctors of Running podcast, where we, a group of doctors of physical therapy, discuss the art and the science of the stuff that we're putting on our feet. I'm Andrea Myers, and today we have an extra special guest with us. We have Dr. Tamana Singh. Dr. Singh is a clinical cardiologist and co-director of the Sports Cardiology Center at the Cleveland Clinic. Thank you so much, Dr. Singh, for joining me today. I'm really excited for all of the knowledge that you're going to share with our listeners. It's truly a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thank you. So just to tell you a little more about Dr. Singh and her background, she earned her medical degree from Boston University School of Medicine, and she served her residency at Boston Medical Center. She also served a three-year fellowship in cardiology at Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai in New York City. Then she returned to Boston to complete her specialty training in sports cardiology with the Cardiovascular Performance Program Fellowship at Massachusetts General Hospital. She joined the Cleveland Clinic medical staff upon completion of that experience in June 2018, and she has provided cardiac care for pro sports teams, competitive and recreational athletes, and highly active individuals, making her the perfect person for our episode today. She has significant experience in cardiopulmonary exercise testing, specifically in athletes, and has participated in multiple pre-participation screening events for collegiate and professional athletes to help ensure their safe participation in sports. And in addition to all of this, she's also a runner. And Dr. Singh is getting ready for New York City Marathon in two weeks, and that's your seventh marathon, right? Yeah. It's very exciting. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, you're in the home stretch. It's taper time. Yes, my favorite. I love taper time. <laughs> yes. <laughs> All the work has been done. Now you can recover a little bit and gear up for the race. Exactly. That's awesome. So Dr. Singh, please tell us a little bit about your work as a sports cardiologist how you got into running, and how marathon training has been going. Sure, yeah. So, I mean, you kind of uh, spelled it all out with respect to my sports cardiology background. So um, we take care of athletes ranging from post-pubescent high school all the way to the professional level, um, master's athletes, younger athletes, recreational individuals, and even people within the cardiovascular realm who just want to get healthy. You know, an athlete is um, we obviously have kind of one definition that a lot of us think about when we think athlete, but everyone is an athlete to some extent. And it's really about incorporating a particular movement um, on a consistent basis. And that could be how you are athletic and incorporating fitness into your life. So that's definitely one um, aspect of what I do. Uh, so I take care of healthy individuals, people who have cardiovascular problems to begin with, or oftentimes we'll see people come to our clinic, you know, seeking a third or fourth opinion, being told they weren't able to play or participate in a sport. Um, and that's where our expertise is very helpful because, you know, my job is really to be their advocate and to find a reason for why they can continue to participate safely. So that's kind of the cool thing about my field. I think, you know, oftentimes we have a lot of providers who are really nervous, usually you know, maybe related to their own personal biases or their inexperience. They get nervous about taking care of athletes, whether they be high stakes or not, though everybody really is high stakes. Um, and so, you know, when you get nervous, you tend to hold back. And it's very easy for providers to hold their patient athletes back. So that's where a sports cardiologist like me can come in and say, you know what, 
let's actually find some concrete reasons for one, why you're able to proceed with sport or two, why we may have to actually do some modification. So, so those things are really what make me really grateful to, to do this as part of my work. Um, and then in terms of running, so it's really interesting, you know, I think in college, everybody gains kind of like the freshman 15 or 30. And I was pretty active growing up. I never did team sports. I hated running, but um, I figure skated and did ballet and, and stuff like that. Uh, but eventually I kind of got to med school and thought I should probably lose a little weight. I feel a little chunky and this body feels foreign to me. So um, I started doing a little bit of running just for weight loss. And then when I was interviewing for sports cardiology, one of my mentors told me, you better be make sure you bring some running sneakers because everybody runs. And I said, no, 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 I hate running. Like I only do a couple of runs a couple of times a week. And then by the end of that year, I'd done a 10 miler. It's getting ready to do a half. And then I went on my marathon journey. That's amazing. It's so funny how many runners stories start with, I hate running. And then seven marathons later, (laughs) <laughs> well, I think it's because usually in school, running is sometimes like a form of punishment. You know, if you're late or, you know, you do something, I don't know, you know, everybody's like, run a lap, run 10 laps. So, um, but maybe there's something that as we get older, we start to look for in, in endurance sport. I'm not sure. Definitely. And I also think that new runners tend to run too hard all the time, which makes running feel awful. But then as you get more into it, you start to figure out that it's actually good to run easy a lot of the time. And then you see the benefits of both hard training and easy training, and maybe it's a little more enjoyable. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So how's your New York prep been going? Feeling good? Yeah. I mean, this was an interesting training cycle. I joke with my coach, this is more of like a a training cycle amidst a recovery cycle. I, I think things were going pretty strong until about two months ago when I got a bit of a calf strain and a little tibial stress reaction, but I was fortunate enough to have kind of like a little anti-gravity system in my home. So, um, using that and just kind of trying to cross train a little bit, um, I was able to, you know, progress my running a lot more than I thought I could. So I think I started the month of September thinking I was not going to be running the marathon. And now here we are. So I'm running this with gratitude and uh, running this to really not so much be the end all be all of all of recovery is over once the marathon is over, but more so this is just a part of the recovery process. Let's see what I can do. And, you know, there will be more marathons out there, but I've only got one of two calves. So Let's yes, be smart. That is true. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, you know, sometimes you can surprise yourself. I mean, there's no such thing as like a perfect build for any race. So even when something, when your training hasn't gone to plan at all, you can still surprise yourself on race day. So good luck to you in two weeks. I'll definitely be uh, looking for you on the tracker. Thank you. Sounds good. Yeah. All right. So let's move on to our subjective question. So to our listeners, you know, we're talking about cardiovascular health and running is one of the greatest ways to build cardiovascular fitness and improve your overall health. But there are a lot of health benefits that we get from running. So what is the most important health benefit that you get from running? And Dr. Singh, I'll ask you that question too. Why do you run? You know, I think that answer changes. Uh, The older you get and the more experienced you become as a runner and as an athlete and as a human, essentially, I think, you know, initially my running journey began because I wanted to lose weight and then it kind of went into, I wanted to get healthier. And now it's really morphed into, you know, how can I show myself that I'm pushing past barriers and walls that I put up myself? Um, And I think, seeing your potential and exceeding your expectation. It doesn't have to be a PR, you know, it can be anything, um, really shows you how strong you are, how capable you are, and it helps you build up mental toughness. And that for me really translated into my professional work and my personal relationships. So I, I go into running now more so, um, because I do know it helps me from a health perspective, but it really, it challenges me, um, as a human. And it, it helps me realize that there's a lot more in me that I have yet to tap into. So those are kind of the big benefits I get. Absolutely. I love that. Um, I would say for me, I've been a runner since I was like 
four years old. So running is just like a part of life for me. And I couldn't run for a while because of a knee injury when I was in my 20s. So I took up cycling. But endurance exercise is just as important as like eating or sleeping to me. If I don't do it, I just don't feel right. So I guess it's just good for my overall physical and mental health. Um, but I, similarly, I also like giving myself new challenges. Um, that's why I came back to running after bike racing for so many years, just having something new to focus on, new goals to think about. So yeah, it's, it's never too late to improve some aspect of your training. Yeah. And there's a huge running community. Um, I don't, oh, yeah. I don't think I, especially after I moved to Cleveland, I didn't, didn't really know much about the running scene here. And then I think just, you know, with social media and what you have in your backyard, running just brings so many people together. I mean, where else can you get 50,000 people who like to do one thing together and then have random people cheer for you? Um, so absolutely, that's pretty cool. Yeah, it is. Yeah. Um, when I moved to Connecticut, I didn't know anybody and I met most of my friends initially through cycling and same thing. I would have never met those people if it wasn't for like a shared love of some activity. I just did a half marathon yesterday and it was so awesome just seeing all of these people that I've met because of running or cycling throughout the years. And yeah, community is so important and what a great way to get a community through an activity like running. Mm -hmm. All right, so let's move on to our main segment. And first, I just want to talk about all of the benefits of regular cardiovascular exercise. I mean, I don't think any of our listeners need to be convinced as to why running is great, but I also think that a lot of our listeners don't realize all of the great benefits they're getting from the running that they do. So could you tell us some of the reasons regular cardiovascular exercise is so good for us? Oh my gosh, there's so many, so many reasons. The key reasons um, and the key health benefits that we typically get from consistent physical activity include um, regulation of our blood sugar, you know, prevention for diabetes, the regulation of our blood pressure. So it helps to keep a lot of our blood vessels in our body nice and pliable so that they can dilate and get larger to accommodate greater oxygen demand to our muscles when we need them um, versus vessels that could get really stiff with high blood pressure over time and not allow for that oxygen delivery. It helps to control our blood cholesterol. So cholesterol is basically what accumulates in these in our blood vessels, our heart vessels, our coronary arteries, for instance, which can cause heart attacks. And so exercise helps to control a lot of that bad cholesterol in our blood. Um, weight management, we kind of touched on that a little earlier, you know, by kind of optimizing our body composition. I hate to kind of mention weight as a finite number, as a target. It's really our body comp, you know, looking at our fat muscle ratios. Exercise can really help to define that for you and especially kind of whichever track you're looking at with respect to the type of athletics you enjoy. So those are kind of the majority of um, exercise benefits or ex yeah, health benefits you get from exercise. And interestingly, a lot of those um, in conjunction with one another can reduce your cardiovascular risk by about 80%. So a lot of times I tell my athlete patients, you know, cardiovascular disease is the number one killer, but we can prevent it by almost 80% with just lifestyle and behavior modification optimization. And we've already talked a lot about some of those kind of psychological benefits in addition to the physical benefits we gain. So this is kind of like a win-win situation. Yeah, 80%. That's amazing. It, you know, a lot of people say if exercise were a pill, it would be a, you know, multi-billion dollar drug. But I think it's becoming more common for doctors and of course, physical therapists it's a main part of our jobs. We pre prescribe physical activity to people and the results can be just as good, if not better than some of the drugs that doctors could prescribe. Oh yeah. I mean, it's not a big necessarily moneymaker in the health industry, right? Treatments and drugs and procedures tend to make a lot of the money, but prevention is the most cost-saving thing that we can do and is probably the most economical, most environmentally friendly. Um, you know, we can reduce our impact and improve kind of our human value with something that's just as simple as a consistent movement. So there's, like I said, there's there's no harm to, to trying and maintaining the habit. Definitely. So what are the current physical activity recommendations for adults? How many minutes per week and what type of exercise are we talking about? So I typically cite the American Heart Association guidelines, which is based upon essentially the United States physical activity um, guidelines that are, are 
evidence base, and I think uh, from 2018. So um, the two styles of exercise that help us gauge the amount of time per week are basically moderate intensity or conversational paced exercise and vigorous intensity or high intensity kind of, you know, you're speaking a couple of words at a time huffing and puffing a little bit type of exercise. So the HA recommends about 150 minutes of moderate intensity exercise per week and 75 minutes of vigorous. And you could do a combination, you could do one or the other. In all honesty, it's really whatever you enjoy doing. Yeah, and that's that's so achievable. I think for a lot of our listeners, that will sound on the low side. Um, I know that I did a nine and a half hour training week last week. So I met that goal from the AHA. Um, but it's not a lot. You don't have to do so much. It doesn't take up a whole chunk of your day. You can get it in in smaller chunks, right? Like the recommendation isn't that it has to be continuous. It could be three 10-minute walks throughout the day. Exactly. I mean, at this point, I think, you know, we're we're saying anything is better than nothing, right? And, you know, people are very busy, but you do have those 10 minutes in a day to get up from your desk and to go out and walk or use part of your lunch break to do that or use it, you know, when your kids are bugging you at home and you're like, you guys go to bed, I need to go outside for 15 minutes and do something for me. So movement is movement, however you do it, whichever way you do it, but it will add up. Absolutely. So then thinking about people on the other end of the spectrum, has research found that there is an upper limit to the volume of beneficial exercise? So interestingly, this is a great question, actually, just because we know about a lot of those cardiovascular benefits and health benefits we get from um, exercise dose. So that integrates intensity and volume and duration. And there's this extreme exercise hypothesis that exists that shows this kind of curvilinear decrease, meaning as exercise dose increases, our health benefits um, increase. or our health risk, I should say, decline. So we see this decline until a certain point. That point has yet to be defined, but there are some studies that suggest that perhaps with extreme exercise, so beyond a particular exercise dose, those health benefits are lost. So the types of studies that we're looking at that might show with extreme, extreme exercise, we see some loss of health benefit are really epidemiological studies. So they're not kind of tried and true prospective uh, types of studies. Um, There's no actual number that I could define saying, oh, beyond this many hours per week or this many hours in your lifetime, your risk goes up. But we do know that there are some cardiovascular manifestations, whether they be actually harmful or not harmful, can um, exists, particularly when we see decades and decades of endurance activity. Okay. So we really don't know what like the optimal dose is, and we don't really know what the upper limit is of cardiovascular training over a lifetime. No, and if you think about it, the majority of us are probably not even going to get close to that extreme number. Um, I think the people who are probably maybe at that nadir or at that point where we're starting to see a little bit of loss of health benefit might be you know, endurance athletes who are really working at high, high intensities for decade upon decade upon decade. So maybe people who start in their 20s and are continuing in their 50s or 60s. But again, that's relatively anecdotal and we don't have any large, you know, database um, evidence to support that. But when we're looking at the changes that we see from a cardiovascular perspective, it typically tends to be in this higher intensity, higher exercise dose category. Okay. And we'll get more into what so I know a lot of people who would fall into that category, um, including myself. So, And we'll get a little more into what should people like that do regarding maybe pre-activity screening or figuring out their individual risk mm-hmm. a little bit later in the podcast. Um, but next, I wanted to talk to you about the cardiac changes that occur in endurance athletes, because we do know that there are, there's a constellation of changes that are typically seen in people who do endurance-type training over a long period of time. And some of them, the changes are positive, but others may potentially lead to problems down the road. So could you first tell our listeners what the normal, what are the normal cardiac changes in endurance athletes? Sure. So I think the first thing to remember is that exercise in itself is going to be some form of stress. So whether you're healthy or not healthy, it can trigger kind of a little bit of a stress response with respect to your body that is transient. It lasts for a couple of hours and it goes away. 
over time with exercise, we do see changes that are related to exercise called exercise-induced cardiac remodeling. And that typically is going to be dependent upon the type of sport you play. Now, our data and our kind of initial guidelines uh, looking at cardiovascular abnormalities and competitive athletes tried to demarcate the cardiovascular changes that we see in chamber size um, and uh, in chamber function, tried to make it a bit black and white, but we're realizing a lot of sports fall into two um, or a combination of the two categories, whether they be endurance or whether they be more of like the weightlifting, powerlifting type of a category. With endurance sport, we typically anticipate that the heart size is going to get a little larger. And usually all four chambers in the heart just get a little larger proportional to one another. One doesn't get bigger than the other chamber. That would be an abnormality. And the relaxation patterns of the heart also maintain um, are, are, are retained. Um, so why does that happen? Well, with endurance activity, you know, we require higher stroke volume, higher blood volume to flow through our our cardiovascular system to provide the oxygen that we need to go to our muscles. The demand is just higher. So to accommodate for greater volume, what's the heart going to do? It's going to get a little bigger. Comparing that to people who are power lifters or weightlifters, you know, they have to deal with a higher pressure load on the heart. And the heart is a muscle, just like a bicep. So in order to accommodate that higher pressure or quote unquote higher weight that perhaps a bicep would see, they would get a little thicker. So those are kind of two of the predominant camps we see either increased chamber size or increased wall thickness. For our runners, our cyclists, you know, our skiers, um, we're typically thinking more along the camps of probably some little bit of enlargement in the heart with no compromise in function or relaxation. That's normal. Um, in situations where we see abnormalities in chamber size, so some disproportionate increase where we see dysfunction in contractility and relaxation, that would all be abnormal and that would warrant further investigation. Okay. And let's say a runner who's in their 40s has a pre-op EKG. That EKG might find some abnormalities that would be considered normal due to their endurance training, but aren't dangerous. What would a couple of those things be? Yeah, so we actually have our own criteria, EKG criteria for athletes, just because as you had mentioned, there are certain things that sedentary individuals are um, abnormal and require additional uh, evaluation versus in athletes, there are certain things that could be um, seen to be abnormal, but are actually normal. So um, in some situations, sometimes we see some variation in certain segments of the EKG that can be normal in specific populations of our athletes versus our sedentary individuals. Um, sometimes we can see some prolongation in specific intervals of the EKG, um, which may be normal for athletes and not normal for sedentary individuals. Um, EKGs are an excellent way to look at the electricity of the heart. They're not a um, 100% diagnostic way to evaluate the size of the heart, but there are certain variations in the in the waveforms that can be suggestive of perhaps chamber enlargement. So those findings in isolation may not require additional um, workup in athletes, but would in sedentary individuals. So the criteria, I mean, there's so many different little criteria um, that it could be a little overwhelming. But what I would say is if you're an athlete, you're getting an EKG done, remember that the EKG done is typically read first by the computer. And then you really need to have a sports cardiologist take a look at it to be able to differentiate between what would be normal for you and what would not be normal for you. Because there are certain EKG findings that are pathologic in any way. So would that just be that athlete, when they go for that pre-op, make sure that they tell the provider, hey, I'm a marathon runner, um, make sure that whoever's reading my EKG knows that? How do they make sure that they don't get a call from their surgeon saying, oh, we can't do surgery because you've got some EKG issues? Yeah. I mean, the most common thing is usually like a low heart rate. You know, someone's heart rate's in the 30s or 40s, and then the EKG is severe bradycardia, abnormal. Um, but that's really normal for you. So sports cardiologists, unfortunately, you know, we're a small community, so we're not everywhere. I still think telling your provider, hey, you know what? I'm an athlete. I participate in X sports. I just want to let you know. I even have a copy of my prior EKG that I've done just to show you what my normal is. Think of an EKG as your footprint. I think all of that provides context. So if you do have a heart rate of 35 and they look at you and you're like, I've got my running sneaks on, I'm going for a run after this, you know, they're not going to say, oh no, 
there's some abnormality here. They're going to actually say, no, this is actually your normal. So don't be alarmed. Um, provide as much context as you can, but also bear in mind that um, you may not have access to a sports cardiologist where you are. And if you don't, that's where you can you know, usually reach out to providers like me and we can try to be of assistance. Yes. And I'm definitely going to ask you about that later because there are so few of you and it's hard for people to find someone who's actually knowledgeable and experienced with athletes and to get the right answers about their specific problems. Um, I wanted to ask you a question that we got from a listener. Um, this is from Mel Joy W. And regarding, you know, we were just talking about what the normal cardiac changes are in endurance athletes, but there are others that aren't considered normal, even if you are an athlete. So her question is, his or her question is, can years of endurance training cause long-term damage? And could you tell us what some of those abnormal findings are in endurance athletes? Sure. Yeah. So we talked a lot about kind of the normal exercise induced cardiac remodeling, but there are, you know, four or five things that we have seen that could be chronic changes um, from a cardiovascular perspective that may or not may or may not be harmful. And so the four that I typically think of are increased coronary artery calcification. So calcified deposits within the heart vessels. Um, there is also, you know, could there be an increased risk of sudden cardiac arrest or death? Um, increased risk of perhaps fibrosis or kind of tough tissue, scar tissue within the heart muscle, um, or increased risk of uh, a very common heart uh, arrhythmia, atrial fibrillation. We typically think of, you know, older individuals being at greatest risk for this, but we definitely do see it in athletes. And the big question that comes up are, are these chronic changes are these things that should make me take pause, make me stop exercising? Are these things that are going to impact my mortality? Are these things um, going to um, make me live a life that could have been healthier if I pulled back on the amount of exercise I do? And the evidence that we have so far suggests that there's really no reason to stop exercise. So we can kind of break it down one by one. So, you know, for instance, coronary artery calcification, what does that mean? So I mentioned that in our heart vessels, um, we can accumulate plaque, cholesterol deposition. And that deposition can be kind of soft, squishy plaque or sometimes calcified plaque. But that plaque burden is inflammatory. It's atherogenic. Um, it's heart disease. What we're finding in endurance athletes is that they tend to have higher amounts of uh, coronary artery calcification, but they don't have a lot of that soft, squishy, sticky cholesterol deposit plaque. And the hypothesis is that perhaps that calcified deposit is not inflammatory at all, but it could just be related to the mechanical stress of blood flow. And that again is a hypothesis. And there's actually been studies about this. And there was uh, one study in particular in particular that showed athletes did have higher burdens of coronary artery calcification, but those with increased cardiorespiratory fitness or increased athleticism, you could say, still had decreased cardiovascular risk. So there's definitely an instance where having a higher calcium score on a CT scan, that's probably the easiest way I could contextualize it, doesn't mean that your exercise is harming you. But there's definitely a difference between a lower calcium score in the hundreds versus a calcium score in the thousands, with the latter definitely being something I would consider pathology until proven otherwise. Um, the other things that we could see, so there's this question of is um, exercise pro-arrhythmogenic? And the one arrhythmia I brought up was atrial fibrillation. AFib is typically um, a situation where you get these uh, electrical currents coming from the top left chamber of the heart in an irregular dose, in an irregular smattering, and they tend to cause an irregular rhythm that can be slow in its rate or very fast. And sometimes people feel symptoms like difficulty breathing, like they're pushing against a wall or lightheaded or dizzy. We typically see AFib in individuals who are older. You know, old age is the number one risk factor, but we are starting to see AFib in some of our athletes. And when I say we're starting to see, it's not a huge proportion of athletes. It's still few and far between. But the thought process behind this is that with exercise-induced cardiac remodeling, particularly endurance sport, if we do see a little bit of chamber enlargement in those areas of enlargement, particularly in that left atrium, that top left chamber, those areas become nidus for a little bit of scar and fibrosis, which become electrically active. And that can be the trigger for atrial fibrillation. In athletes, we typically describe this as lone AFib because athletes are 
most often, not everybody, but most often healthy with no other cardiovascular issues. And we have studies that show that exercise still helps to reduce the intensity and frequency of AFib. Big question for us becomes, is there an exercise dose that is associated with increased risk of AFib versus not? And that exercise dose may be around, at least based upon a couple of studies, 1,500 to 2,000, maybe more than 2,000 lifetime hours of exercise, which if you kind of try to do that mathematically, you know, that could be even less than a decade of, you know, eight to 10 hours per week of exercise consistently. Um, But that's not enough data for us to say, oh, you got to stop exercising now because we're seeing atrial changes and you're going to get AFib. And my athletes who do have AFib, and I've had people as young as um, 17-year-old competitive rowers to obviously my older individuals, um, I still tell them exercise is going to give you the biggest cardiovascular bang for your buck. Um, And over time, it's going to keep you healthier and probably keep you out of AFib longer than if you stopped exercising. We know when you stop exercising, the risk of cardiovascular disease and a lot of these comorbidities like AFib just go drastically up. So again, Exercise is still good, but this is one particular chronic cardiovascular change that you could see with it. Um, what are the other things? Fibrosis. So that's like a very scary word. Um, when we break down the heart, we think about the two sides, the left side of the heart, which is kind of the stronger pump part of the heart. It pumps all the blood to your circulation, to your fingers, your toes, your muscles. And then we also have the right side of the heart, which is responsible for getting low pressure venous blood flow. So if we look at the thickness of each of those chambers, the left side is obviously thicker just to be able to provide that increased uh, contractility strength, whereas the right side doesn't have to be as thick. It's a thinner wall structure because venous blood is a low pressure system. Why is that important? So with exercise, even transiently with endurance sport, we can see increase in wall stress in the heart. And those increases in wall stress can lead to the release of this protein, this cardiac protein called troponin. Um, Some uh, listeners might be familiar with this. We hear about troponin release, particularly in situations where people have heart attacks, but it's not uncommon to have this enzyme released with transient cardiac, and I hate to use this word, but transient cardiac damage. Um, We've seen it in marathon runners. We've seen it in ultra runners. It's transient. The troponin is released because the heart muscle is going through a little bit of microtrauma, but that heart is still strong. It does recover within a couple of hours to up to 72 hours, depending upon the duration of sport. Over time, what we do see is that with endurance activity, with the right side of the heart being a little thinner, um, not built for a high pressure system like the left side, the right ventricle can sometimes take a bigger hit than the left side. And sometimes we can see some chronic changes, some fibrosis there. But we don't have any evidence to suggest that this increase in fibrosis is related to an increased risk of sudden death or increased risk of bad heart rhythms that could kill you. So this seems to be some exercise-related change that may be transient or maybe something that is carried through. But there's just not enough evidence to date to say that this is going to be net harmful over the long run. Thank you so much for all of that. I think that will be really helpful for our listeners who might be dealing with some of these issues. And I'm glad you brought up the fact that troponin levels can be temporarily elevated, for example, after a marathon. Your blood work can be really off after a marathon or an ultra, right? So it's really actually a bad idea to get any blood work done in like the week after a big race like that because it's potentially going to lead your doctors to conclude that something is very wrong with you. Yeah. And I even tell, even when we do testing in our athletes, if it's going to be some form of cardiac testing, we typically say, please try not to exercise within 24 hours of, of this test because it can impact our results. Um, and you're exactly right. You know, uh, we had just um, recently, there was a college athlete who got struck in the chest and they checked a troponin and it was a little elevated. And the next question for me was, oh my gosh, is this cardiac? And I said, well, the kid just came from a game. This is probably more game related than impact related. Um, so it's just, again, kind of taking all of these things into context. And that also brings me you know, to another point I wanted to mention, you know, troponin release, heart attacks. You know, 
we hear more and more about individuals collapsing from sudden cardiac arrest or sudden cardiac death at marathons, at ultra races, at cycling events. And, you know, the question always becomes, why did this person collapse? Why did they have a heart attack? Why did they die? And it could be someone as young as in their teens, or it could be someone as young as, or someone older, kind of in the 40s, 50s, master's athlete range. Um, And Oftentimes, we don't necessarily know what was the cause unless we have autopsy data. But there was a wonderful study, the RACER study, that took a look at um, about, I want to say, 10 million marathon and half marathon runners over about a decade span of time. And out of all of those millions of runners, only 59 actually had an event. 51 um, out of those 59 were males. Um, And the cause of cardiac arrest, so not death, but the cause of cardiac arrest in the survivors was not what we think of like an acute heart attack where a little piece of plaque breaks off, causes all these clotting factors to create a big clot or thrombus that then prevents blood flow to a part of the heart muscle. So like when someone's clutching their chest and they're like, oh no, my heart hurts, my chest hurts, and they collapse. Those are kind of like those catastrophic heart attacks I think of. But this was really just people who actually had heart disease and had ischemic heart disease, meaning for the demand that they were requiring on their body, they just couldn't meet the the oxygen need. And so there was a bit of supply-demand mismatch there, and that's why they had their arrest. And the people who actually died, that's where we saw actual what we call cardiomyopathy, so disease of the heart muscle itself, most commonly hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. Um, And then some were actually related to low sodium levels or hyperthermia. So there were other reasons for cardiac arrest. And um, even looking at our collegiate NCAA data, you know, I think a lot of us think that heart muscle problems are the main cause of sudden death. But you know, we're starting to see that it could be more related to electrical disturbance. And you can get that even within a normal heart muscle from situations where it's too hot, you get behind on hydration, you get behind on fueling, heat stroke, heat illness, those things can take you down. And, you know, having very markedly abnormal sodium levels that can also lead to cardiac arrest. So um, all of those things, again, exist, are very, very few and far between. And we can really only do so much in terms of protecting ourselves by one, knowing our family history, two, knowing our personal history, three, making sure that we account for any cardiovascular issues we might have because athletes are not immune to high blood pressure or high cholesterol um, or common things like that, or even diabetes. Um, And then four, being aware. So be aware of your hydration, your fueling, your body's capabilities, Um, understand, you know, if there's true physiological limits that you just need to pay heed to. And then I always say, learn how to do CPR. That's probably the, the biggest skill that you could have. But, um, again, these arrests and deaths that we see, um, in the media or sometimes live are not reason enough for you to stop doing what you enjoy doing. Just be smart about it. Definitely. Yeah. Thank you. That's a really important point to make. I think because anytime, you know, sadly, somebody dies at an event. It's covered extensively in the media. But, you know, the other 49,900 people, that did not happen to. So it's easy to make these events seem more common than they are. But the reality is they are not common. Yeah. So uh, what you what you just mentioned leads into my next question, which is about pre-participation screening. So pre-participation screening is required for collegiate athletes and most professional athletes, which is essential for detecting potential problems before they become serious or fatal. Is there a role for pre-participation screening for recreational endurance athletes? So if somebody, you know, like you, took up running in grad school, started doing longer and longer races. They were never in a formal system where they were required to have cardiac screening. Should people who are increasing their training or running marathons or getting to some level of activity have a pre-participation screening? And if so, how should they go about getting that? Yes. You know, screening or cardiac risk assessment is very interesting because it's not even mandated in the United States. Um, it's not mandated mandated by the NCAA. And we typically have that program here that we piloted several years ago um, just to help streamline a lot of symptomatology that we were seeing quite common among athletes being 
heart racing sensations or palpitations, people feeling like they were going to pass out or passing out or chest discomfort. And cardiac risk assessment has its pros and its cons. And the pros are, yes, you could catch some things that could be associated with increased cardiovascular risk, but the cons are if you don't have the people who know what they're reading, meaning don't know how to read an athlete EKG, don't know how to interpret symptoms, cardiac testing, don't know what to do with family history information, then you're going to be leading a lot of athletes down this road of doing a lot of downstream testing that is expensive and likely unnecessary. And then you might even find some incidental stuff that has nothing to do with why they initially were getting evaluated, but now you got to deal with. And we forget, you know, it's, it's easy, I think, for providers to get um, kind of streamlined or tunnel vision into what's, I need to do this, 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 this next. You can easily forget about the psyche of the athlete you know, oftentimes these individuals, specifically college athletes, are really young. You know, the last thing they want to do is see a cardiologist. And now you're telling them that they can't play because of the spining on a sheet of paper and now this other study and this other study. So those are reasons why there could be and there is controversy about whether or not we should actually mandate um, cardiovascular evaluations. For our older athletes, so, you know, people who, like you were mentioning, out of grad school or master's athletes, if you're looking into getting a little more intense or incorporating greater exercise dose for a particular sport, then, you know, there are certain checks that we should do. I mean, one is oftentimes we're really good about, you know, doing things like our prehab and our warmups and our dynamic stretches. Why don't we shift that over into looking at our own physical health and our personal medical history and our family history. So if you're someone who knows that you've had many, many family members who died in their 30s, 40s, or 50s from heart disease, that's abnormal. Now, that is a big red flag for someone like me. And if you're thinking now about doing high-intensity sport, I would definitely go to a provider and say, look, I have a considerable family history for heart problems. This is what I know of. And can we look into my own risk and see is there something that I should modify with respect to my activity? And oftentimes, you know, a lot of people are healthy, but it gets you into a consistent practice where you're not only taking care of the checks you need for running or endurance sport, but you're also taking care of the checks you need for your physical well-being to be able to do what you want to do. You know, it's wonderful to take care of your muscles and your tendons and your bones, but um, at the end of the day, we still need our organs and our heart to keep functioning. So I don't necessarily know if something like that would be ever mandated for you know people out of school, but I do encourage individuals, if you have something in your medical history where you're like, hmm, I know I've got really high cholesterol or my blood pressure has been really high and I haven't seen a doctor recently, those are issues where you should go and see someone, someone like me, where we can say, you know, is an EKG the next appropriate step? Again, it's not the best screening tool. It's very cheap cost effective tool. Um, but we can at least then be a little more specific about what you as an individual may need for us to assess what your risk is moving forward to do the level of activity you want to do at the intensity you want to do it at. Yeah, I think that's great. And emphasizing if you have a significant family history for cardiac disease, then that makes a better case for an asymptomatic individual to go get checked out. Yeah. And it's not even just heart disease. Like I said, so the big things for me are, has anyone in your family died at a really young age, just suddenly out of the blue? So what I'm getting at is, was there any family history of sudden cardiac death? That's a huge red flag. Did anybody die in their teens or in their 20s? Huge red flag. Anybody who's living with a known heart problem, what is that heart problem? Does anybody have a defibrillator in their chest? At what age was it implanted and why? Or a pacemaker? <clears throat> so those types of things. And then, you know, outside of that family history, it's really asking about your own personal symptoms. What happens when you run? What do you feel? Do you ever get chest discomfort or difficulty breathing? That seems disproportionate to the amount of effort you're putting in. And then we can parcel out, is this overtraining? Is this iron deficiency? Is this thyroid abnormality? Or is this cardiac? And does this warrant additional testing? You're essentially doing your own stress test every day by going out there and running. But that gives people like me so much information because there could be a huge difference if you're telling me, you know what, I usually run my marathon pace at six minutes per mile, but I'm noticing with sleep not changed, my hydration and my fueling is all where it's been. My nutrition is great, but 
my marathon pace is really hard at 610. Like now I'm at 610, 615. I can't explain it. And that's a big red flag for me. Whereas for someone else, they might just say, oh, that's really fast anyway. Like it's just 10 seconds. But that has allowed for us to identify people who have very severe heart disease. And that was the big clue. So you know your body so well. Share that information with us. You know, we do look at um, you know, smartwatch data and stuff like that, you know, obviously with a grain of salt, but pattern recognition is what we're looking for, whether it comes to our own cardiac testing or your own personal data. So those are kind of a lot of ways that we can hopefully get ahead of something if something were to happen versus kind of having that fear in the back of our mind of, am I going to be that person who, you know, doesn't make it through this marathon? You know, we never want to have that mindset. Right. Yeah. Act on facts, not on fear. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So let's move on to endurance athletes who are experiencing cardiac symptoms. And this is a really personal topic for me. Uh, a few years ago, one of my friends died as a result of an undiagnosed cardiac issue. He died on his bike. Um, and so th- several others have had heart attacks, have been diagnosed with AFib, with ventricular tachycardia. One of my friends survived an aortic dissection and several of them feel like even now they do not have good guidance about what the appropriate level of physical activity is. And the main reason is they feel like there just aren't any cardiologists around here who understand the type of training that they used to do and understand what they would like to get back to doing. So I just wanted to provide an episode for our listeners because I'm sure that there are so many people out there who either know somebody who have experienced a cardiac issue or they're experiencing symptoms themselves and they just don't know what the right path is to proceed. So what would you tell an athlete who is experiencing new symptoms such as their heart rate spiking really high that doesn't correspond with their level of effort palpitations, chest pain, shortness of breath, what should they do? Go and see someone. And if you do have access to a sports cardiologist in your area or um, are aware of someone who may be in a place that you're able to travel to, definitely seek someone else who understands the physical capacities, kind of the physical nature of sports, um, what each sport type can do from a physiologic perspective so they can understand the context that you're providing, right? So if you're going to someone who doesn't exercise, doesn't know much about running, and you're saying, hey, you know, I run like 30 miles a week, they're going to say, holy moly, 30 miles a week, that's a lot. And then you follow that up by saying, I used to run 100 miles per week, and now I can only run 30. You know, that's very different. So the first thing I would do is don't sweep these types of symptoms under the rugs, because the two things I always say are, one, most likely it's nothing, but two, it could be something and we catch it now before it catches you. And then the other thing to remember is the psychological um, kind of effects of holding on to symptoms that are concerning you, that you're just a little too nervous to get checked out. And sometimes I see that people are nervous because they don't want their training cycle to be interrupted. They don't want to lose fitness. They're scared someone's going to tell them that they can't do what they want to do. They don't want to mix the next thing. But I always try to say, look, if we nip something in the bud now, you will have years and years and years of participation in doing what you want to do. If we identify something now and it's harmful, maybe we've identified it early enough where we can modify and still have you do certain movements or certain sports that still bring you joy, but they just look a little different. So definitely see someone who can help you parcel out what things are worrisome and what are not. And then, you know, see someone who's specific to your symptomatology to help regulate the type of testing that you would need. Um, Usually for my athletes, you know, I love cardiopulmonary exercise testing or VO2 max testing for several different reasons. One, you know, it gives me an understanding of someone's fitness capacity. And it also allows for me to get someone to do the type of exercise that's not foreign to them. So this is not a typical quote unquote stress test where you're just walking up an incline every three minutes and it changes an incline and speed. I'm having you run. I'm trying to simulate the thing that brings about your symptoms, or I can have you bike to try to simulate your symptoms. Um, So there's different things that we can do in our lab to recreate the situation 
that makes you feel like something is hurting or makes you feel like um, there's something that's that's holding you back. So let's say somebody for the pet for a week, they go on their runs and their heart rate just spikes, you know, to 230 and their max heart rate is normally 170. Unless they go to the ER, they're probably not going to get seen right away. So what should that person do between the time that they notice this pattern of symptoms and actually getting in to be evaluated? Because I think that could potentially be a dangerous point where they're experiencing symptoms, but their primary care can't see them for a month. A cardiologist can't see them for six months. Should they go to urgent care? I mean, the ER, unless they're having an acute event, the ER probably isn't the appropriate place for them. So what would you recommend in terms of being seen in a timely manner. Yeah. I mean, unfortunately, I can't control when people are seen outside of my own clinic. And these are situations where, you know, we in our sports cardiology center understand kind of the timeliness of of what a sport requires, you know, whether it be a team sport and knowing that keeping someone out for three weeks just to wait to get to be seen is like half of a season. Uh, so we really try to get people in within 24 to 48 hours of symptomatology. But if you're not able to, or you don't have access to that, not able to do that, I think the first couple of questions you could probably answer on your own. So over that course of week, you know, ask yourself, did anything else change from a stress perspective? Stress being things like sleep, again, hydration, your nutrition. Um, if you've had access to recent labs, what are your iron levels looking like? Um, stress and anxiety, you know, or did something change in your fitness and maybe are you overtraining now? And then look at how your data was acquired. So if you're seeing these heart rate sparks, spikes because you're using a smartwatch, are you someone who just uses a watch alone or do you use a chest strap? Because a chest strap is going to be inherently a little more accurate than the, than the watch. Um, then you can kind of go back and trace over your trends and see, okay, it looks like I have, it looks like I have a spike here. How did I feel during that spike? Did I just look down at my watch and say, oh, it says 2.30, but I feel great. And that's probably not an abnormality. It's probably an inaccuracy. But if you at 2.30 were like, oh, my God, I can't breathe. I'm going to pass out or my heart's just beating out of my chest. Trust your gut. You know, it's, in my mind, it's probably something that requires further evaluation until proven otherwise. Uh, but those are at least some kind of easy checks that you can do on your own. But if you truly, if let's say you have those spikes over the week and then all of a sudden you're stuck in a spike in the 200s, you should definitely go to urgent care or emergent care. And then even on the market now, you know, there's a number of devices out there. Um, and I, I say this with the caveat of if you're someone who's more on the anxious level or having access to more things makes you more anxious and more stressed, then don't do this. But if you're someone who can have a little bit more control about that, there are devices out there where you can actually record your heart rhythm um, outside of, you know, I know even now Garmin has EKG features, but outside of things like that, like the CardioMobile device, you put your fingers on this kind of metal strip and it can record your EKG or even the fourth frontier chest strap, which can actually show you um, your rhythm with pretty good accuracy. These are some ways to at least get things recorded, get them on a PDF. So you could say, hey, doc, I know you can't see me. But I do have some data. And, you know, here within our electronic medical record system, we've got really easy communication uh, among patients and providers. And, you know, usually we're, I'm responding within 24 hours. Most people are responding within 24 to 72. But that might be an easy way to say, I've got some data. This is how I'm feeling. I know I have yet to see you, but these things are concerning me. Is there anything that you could offer just based upon some of the printouts that I'm providing or sending your way? So those are, I think, some ways to kind of try to try to field the unfortunate issues with our healthcare system of trying to see someone when you need to be seen. Yes, and th I think the point of like, how did you feel when your watch said it was two twenty? Because yeah, we've all experienced. You know, you start out your easy run, and it says your heart rate's through the roof, and you know it's not. It's just dry air or whatever. It's an anomaly. But if your heart rate feels like it's 220, then that's a more serious issue for sure. Um, so as we've discussed a little bit already, there aren't a lot of people like you out there. But do you do telehealth consults? Like how could a person who doesn't have a sports cardiologist in their area connect with an expert like you to get 
the best opinion for what they should do regarding both their health and their training? Yeah. So at least within our sports cardiology center here at the Cleveland Clinic, I mean, we do telehealth visits. We do second opinions. Um, and some of these things are a little bit restricted by the states that we are licensed in, uh, my co-director and myself. Um, but we're more than happy to to help anyone that we can. And we have our own kind of email system, too. And if someone sends an email and says, hey, I'm in this location, but I just don't know who to get in touch with. And we're more than happy to help you um kind of by looking at our own community and finding providers who might be of easy access to you. And we're happy to answer questions. Obviously, you know, clinical questions are challenging to answer outside of an office visit, you know, from kind of a legality perspective. But um, I think most of us really just want to be as helpful as possible and can at least answer some things in a more generalizable fashion. Um, Sports cardiology centers are popping up kind of everywhere. I feel like it's suddenly becoming a bit trendy, but I do you know, counsel you to make sure that whoever you see has been doing this or has been trained to do this um, so that you're not seeing kind of anybody who just says, hey, I like athletes or I'm an athlete myself. And so I'm doing sports cardiology. Um, But, you know, my partner here and I have been doing this for years um, and we can vouch for other people within our community who are excellent at what they do um, in the East Coast, on the West Coast, um, here in the Midwest and even um, in the Southeast as well. So, Um, We're more than happy to try to connect you to whoever might be closest to you. That's great. And thank you so much for that. Is there a professional organization for sports cardiologists that maybe has a website with a registry of who actually has the knowledge, not just calls themselves a sports cardiologist? I would say the best place to go to is the American College of Cardiology website. We have our own um, kind of exercise in sports cardiology council, and there is typically a list of different sports cardiology centers or sports cardiologists who are involved. Um, with the ACC, uh, most of us who are with, involved within the ACC are, have been doing this for several years or have been trained or at least have gone through you know a number of the educational curriculum that um, – that I think you need to go through in order to understand how to take care of an athlete, um, that would be the best starting point. Okay, great. And we'll throw those links in the show notes so that our listeners can check those out. Um, So once, let's say an athlete has been diagnosed with an issue, let's say they've been diagnosed with AFib, how does a sports cardiologist determine what dosage and intensity of training is safe? And I know that it's specific to an individual, but like what process would you use to help figure that out? So oftentimes it's a lot of the data that the athlete patient has themselves. So sometimes they'll say, you know, on these types of rides or these types of runs, when I do this particular intensity, that's when I notice I go into AFib, but if I pull back, I go out of it. And we then kind of get a general sense of the intensity, how long it lasts, and most importantly, does it evoke symptoms? Does it evoke symptoms that make you want to stop, make you feel you know, just not good? Or is it something where you're like, I don't even notice that I'm an AFib, for instance. Um, Those things are typically what help me determine the exercise load or the exercise prescription. Um, But it's a shared decision. You know, it ends up being, you know, what does my athlete feel comfortable doing? We can use testing like stress testing to define perhaps specific intensities. If we notice Or if the athlete patient says to me, you know, when I'm going at like a five and a half minute clip, that's when I go into my AFib. Now we can try to reproduce that and see, is this truly AFib or is this maybe just a really rapid heart rate that he can't distinguish from AFib? And that might be enough to provide some reassurance saying, actually, you're not even an AFib in that situation. You're in a normal rhythm. And that might help reassure them that they're doing okay and they can continue what they're doing. If it comes to something more along the flavors of a cardiomyopathy, so an actual abnormality within the heart muscle that could be related to an increased risk of sudden cardiac arrest or death, then things kind of change. There are certain flavors of cardiomyopathy where we're becoming a little more liberal um, with respect to exercise capacity, and um, that includes hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. um, And that's where cardiopulmonary exercise testing or stress testing can be helpful because there might be a certain threshold, particularly defined by heart rate, where we're noticing increased abnormal heart rhythm versus not. And that might be the threshold where I say, hey, let's try to keep exercise below this heart rate, understanding that if that heart rate's in their kind of zone two work area, they're probably going to continue to get fitter, right? And as they get fitter, that exercise intensity is going to be done at a lower heart rate. And so that heart rate might change. 
So kind of doing surveillance testing in that way will help us kind of keep tabs on what is proarrhythmogenic versus what is not. Things may change over the years if the expression of the disease also changes. Thank you. That's a great explanation. That's very helpful to hear just your thought process for different types of cardiac issues. So we got a bunch of listener questions for this episode. And in the interest of time, I just want to ask you one of them um, from Karen K. Just. She said, she or he said, we would love to hear about any connections between COVID and cardiac changes in runners. So we know that there are some associations, but could you tell us what they are, what people should be on the lookout for if they have COVID or recently had it. Yeah. So I think when COVID first came out, you know, the big word that was out uh, in media was myocarditis, which is basically inflammation of the heart muscle um, that can be associated with increased risk of cardiac arrest or death, which is why it's kind of like a quote unquote big name in the viral world uh, from a cardiac perspective. You can get myocarditis from anything, from the flu, from COVID, from any viral entity, or from really anything that can trigger heart inflammation. Um, so that caused kind of the biggest area of concern, at least when we started to look at our own athletes and um, post-COVID uh, cardiac evaluations, being a bit more aggressive to start. What do I mean by that? Doing an EKG or heart ultrasound and maybe even a heart MRI to now realizing that the actual incidence of myocarditis is extremely, extremely low, um, less than 1% uh, based upon uh, the collegiate data that we have. So very few and far between. Acutely with COVID infection from a cardiac perspective, when we think about our athletes, it's like any other viral illness. You know, if you're feeling crummy, if you're not well, Understand that your body is dealing with additional stress. The last thing we want to do is compound it with the stress of exercise. As much as we think it might make us feel better, stress upon stress is probably going to make you feel worse. So I say respect the viral illness, respect the illness, and get that rest and recovery you need. It's like inflammation in your ankle or tendonitis or something mild. If you've got that little niggle, take care of it in those first couple of days versus waiting for it to turn into a full-blown injury that takes you out six or seven weeks. Um, and then based upon your symptomatology and how you're feeling, you can then start to amplify. You know, I usually say start with a lower intensity um, amount of exercise. And if you're feeling good, slowly ramp it up. So kind of like a return to play protocol that you could easily do with a musculoskeletal injury. Um, a lot of the things that I'm seeing with COVID or um, acute COVID or maybe even subacute COVID is um, fluctuations in heart rate. That's probably one of the biggest things people will say, uh, my heart rate goes sky high when I'm just walking from one room to the other. Usually my resting heart rate's in the 40s. Now it's in the 70s, 80s. That's abnormal for me. That, again, is probably a marker of stress versus a marker of a cardiac abnormality. We have to understand that you know, our, our heart rate is also regulated by our nervous system, by our sympathetic, our fight and flight system, and our parasympathetic, our rest and digest system. And that autonomic nervous system regulates everything from our head to our toes and our body. So if we've got a stressor, it's kind of like fight or flight. Our heart rate's probably going to go up. Our blood pressure may also be up. And then the other things too is when we're, you know, not necessarily bed rest, but we're not as active as we typically want to be. You know, our plasma volume adjusts for that. It goes a little lower. Our heart rate goes up a little bit. Um, we're a little more dehydrated. People can get a little lightheaded. So a lot of that stuff is what I hear about um, the majority of the time. Outside of acute COVID, we have post-COVID syndrome. So um, that is now really seen as a disability, at least here in America, because I would say probably 30 to 40% of individuals, at least with the uh, initial viral uh, virus strains develop post-COVID syndrome, and I've seen it less and less with the change in um, in, in the virus strains uh, over the last year or two. Post-COVID syndrome is really challenging to manage, especially for athletes. Um, that was and still remains probably a decent amount of my patient panel, people who used to run or do endurance sport and never had any, never had any issues with exercise, never had health problems, and suddenly. Again, like those smallest intensity of movement, the lightest of the lightest jog makes them feel awful, causes chest pain, difficulty breathing, um, heart, heart rate escalations, sometimes passing out. And all of this, you know, is just mentally exhausting, physically exhausting, can lead to post-traumatic stress, can lead to depression. Um, and so I found that particularly challenging to manage because there's... 
oftentimes nothing wrong from a cardiovascular perspective. Um, and what we're finding, at least from a hypothesis perspective, is it could be related to you know, their autonomic nervous system. It could be related to vascular health, so vessel health or endothelial health. Um, it could be related to retained viral particles in the gut. There's so many different hypotheses for why post-COVID syndrome has, has come about. But, you know, if we think about it, we've had post-viral syndromes uh, for decades and decades, right? You know, we have EBV and lymphoma. We have hepatitis and cirrhosis. So um, this is, I think, new for all of us because we're so used to having something come and then leave quickly and never stay and continue to harm us. Um, but those are probably a lot of the things that I hear that sound like cardiovascular symptoms. It could be cardiovascular in origin, but nearly always are not. Yeah. So of course, getting checked out, making sure that they are not, and then getting to the appropriate person to help with the root cause if the root cause can be determined. Exactly. Yeah. Well, um, Dr. Singh, this has been just such an amazing episode. Thank you so much for joining me. Do you have any closing thoughts for our listeners regarding just anything we've talked about? If you're experiencing symptoms, what you would recommend, how to keep your heart healthy, just any last words for our listeners here? Yeah, I think, you know, when you finish up listening to this wonderful podcast episode, I don't want listeners to leave thinking something's wrong with me. I want listeners to leave feeling empowered. Like you have a new skill set to evaluate yourself in a different way. And that evaluation is not always negative. It could be positive. It could be a way to learn about yourself, learn about things that maybe you didn't think about, or maybe pay attention to symptomatology that you thought you could just kind of push under the rug. Now our bodies, and I think as athletes, we become really in tune to our bodies and we focus a lot on our muscles and our uh, musculoskeletal system. But if you're feeling something centrally, if you're feeling like there's some effort that you didn't anticipate in the work that you're doing, or if your gut's just telling you something's weird, something is off, get it checked out. You know, rip off that Band-Aid. Face that, face that fear because oftentimes, you know, that fear is going to turn into reassurance. And you'll go into your next race or into your next endurance effort, just feeling psychologically relieved and confident in what you're doing. So I think just bear in mind that a lot of these things we talked about happen in a very small cohort of individuals. We are not immune to cardiovascular problems, but we are in control of how we choose to live our lives um, as individuals and as a community. So utilize the resources and the network that we have, the powers of the socials, um, and um, the powers of good evidence-based medicine. Um, and we're here to, to help you stay as healthy as possible. Absolutely. Love it. Thank you so much, Dr. Singh. Um, it will, in the show notes, leave where to find Dr. Singh's practice. Um, as always, we appreciate your questions. Please leave us a review either on YouTube or on your podcast platform. And we'll see you next time. Thanks, everybody. Thank you.